0: Welcome everyone to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Gary Schneeberger, the Communications Director for Crucible Leadership and the co-host of this podcast. And you have uh, clicked play on, we hope you've clicked subscribe to, a podcast that deals in a subject that's extremely important, and that is crucible experiences. Those moments in life that are painful, those moments in life that can be traumatic, failures and setbacks, traumas and tragedies, those things that can knock you off the trajectory your life was on. And the reason that we talk about those things, the reason that we interview guests who either have had those experiences or can give us a perspective on how to bounce back from those experiences is so that we can point toward what crucible leadership calls a life of significance. That's the end goal here of moving beyond your crucible to finding, pursuing a life of significance. And with me, as always, if he wasn't here, it wouldn't be called Beyond the Crucible, is Warwick Fairfax, the host of the program and the founder of Crucible Leadership. Warwick, welcome.
1: Great to be here, Gary.
0: So today we have what's going to be a really exciting interview. For, for listeners who've been with us for a while, you know that a lot of the things that we talk about, a lot of the Crucible experiences and the tips for bouncing back from them, are experientially based. But we've got a guest today who has a more scientific approach to how we get through that. And that guest is Dr. Susie Green, a clinical and coaching psychologist and founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, a positively deviant organization dedicated to the research and application of positive psychology for life, school, and work. Susie lectured on applied positive psychology as a senior adjunct lecturer in the coaching psychology unit at the University of Sydney, that's in Australia, for 10 years and is honorary vice president of the International Society for Coaching Psychology. Susie also currently holds, and this is a long list and an impressive list, honorary academic positions at the Positive Psychology Center, Melbourne Graduate School of Education, University of Melbourne, the Wellbeing Institute, Cambridge University, and I got to hear more about this one, the Black Dog Institute. (laughs) Susie is also an ambassador for the Starlight Children's Foundation, and she is one of two people with really great accents on this show. The other one is Warwick. Take it away, Warwick.
1: Well, Susie, it is wonderful to have you and just love the whole concept of Positivity Institute and uh, post-traumatic growth which I'm which we'll get into when I looked at your website and saw that your company's based in Double Bay Australia for those okay. who aren't from Australia or from Sydney Double Bay is a suburb of Sydney and it's the same suburb where I grew up so it was uh okay. kind of wild. we were chatting off air about one of your sons went to the same high school I, I did so incredibly small world so um but again, Susie, wonderful to have you. So, before we get into just a positive institute and post-traumatic growth, tell us a bit about who you are and your story and what led you to get into psychology, in particular the positive uh, psychology aspect of that.
2: Yeah. Well, firstly, thank you so much, Warwick and Gary, uh, for having me as a, ho- a guest on the the show today. Um, it's a been a long journey, as I guess most people's journeys and stories are. But uh, to make it a, a little bit shorter, I guess. I left school when I was sixteen, and uh, no one in my family had gone to university. There were sort of no expectations it was get married and have children and I actually married my childhood sweetheart from school and uh, he had done quite well, had uh, studied medicine and had decided to study uh, psychiatry. And so at the time I was working in administration secretarial work in my early twenties. And he used to come home and tell me these incredible stories about the patients. And I just became completely intrigued. And I, you know, Never thought that I would go to university but it was thankfully and, and you'll often hear and I'm sure you do in these stories, it's somebody that sees some strengths in you and encourages you to go forward. So he, I have a lot to thank. We're divorced now so um, but I have a lot to thank him for and he encouraged me to apply to attend university, which I did. And I think it took me about 14 years and two children, and I ended up with a doctorate in clinical psychology. And um, But one little, uh, it wasn't quite a crucible experience, but perhaps one of more of those aha moments. I remember sitting in the, le- in the lecture theatre at the University of Wollongong, my very first lecture, absolutely petrified, thinking, what am I doing here? Everyone's so much smarter than I am. And uh, the lecturer started by saying, you know, there's about a hundred of you here today. There'll only be 12 of you possibly that make it through to the very end um, with doctorates. And I had no reason to believe that it was going to be me, but I, something went click and I, I just knew, I just knew it was going to be me. And look, I studied other subjects. I did, um, you know, I did history and literature and I did okay, but I just excelled in psychology. And I think, you know, I had the opportunity to talk to my husband when I came home in the evenings at night and, um, You know, then I started working at a psychiatric clinic again through connections through my husband or ex-husband as it turned out to be and then I've been on this incredible journey over the last 20 years and I've sort of grown up with this field of positive psychology so it's also been a matter for me of being in the right place at the right time and I actually do believe that this is what I'm meant to be doing and uh, there's some wonderful research in positive psychology around callings and I do feel like this is is my Mm -hmm. calling and what I'm meant to be doing and and some of these crucible mini crucible experiences I've had. I wouldn't say I've had big ones like some of your guests, but the mini ones have certainly informed who I am and what I'm doing and where I'm going.
1: You know, it's sort of interesting when we look back at how we've got to where we've got. It's often, you know, as you look back, yeah. You know, again, I'm a person of faith. So you think, gosh, there was sort of a line of red crumbs or somehow that was laid that if certain mm. events hadn't happened, who knows? We, we never know the what ifs because it's unknowable. But, Absolutely. you know, like with your first husband, maybe in the long term, it didn't work out. But the fact that he was in medicine and was exposing you to certain areas, if you'd married, I don't know, an accountant or somebody different, <laughs> I mean, knows? who knows, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like you, you can't get excited about something that you've never heard of. I haven't experienced. I mean, exactly. you know, and, but somehow that happened. And um, what was it about psychology that... uh really intrigued you, that sort of called out to you. It's almost like you hear a tune and it's like, this is my tune. What about it just led you down that road?
2: And you know, I didn't really understand that for a long time, but I think more recently as I've become familiar with character strengths and virtues, and I have my strengths art behind me on the (laughs) wall here, and there's a whole body of research around that. Mm -hmm. One of my top strengths, two of my top strengths, so we often talk about our top five Mm -hmm. character strengths. These are morally valued strengths. One is curiosity. Sometimes my uh, partner will tell me I overplay that and I ask too many questions <laughs> that uh, might become nosiness. But uh, so, curiosity and I have love of learning. And so, those two strengths combined. Once, I guess I found a a passion as well. And I mean, most people find psychology interesting, whether you go on to become Mm -hmm. a psychologist or not. And in fact, I I saw some research showing it's, I think, one of the top subjects that's studied uh, as an undergrad, regardless of what Mm. professional career you go into.
1: Yeah, I think maybe there's this natural curiosity of how are people wired? How do they think? What makes them tick? And then obviously in your case, how can I make a positive contribution in the field, not just intellectually, but in a way that helps people? So yes. there's something about that that really drew you. And just one point I also want to clarify for listeners in the US in the US, an enormous, well, a significant proportion of people go to college. It's not yes. that way in Australia, you no. know, at least not when, you know, we were growing up. I mean, obviously, That's I come right. from a family where. The expectation of going to university was pretty yeah, clear. Was Everybody did. <laughs> and it right. wasn't just go to university, it was go to Oxford. You know, that's, right. that's where I went, my dad went, my grandfather went. So there was clear. Exactly. But for most Australians that didn't grow up the way I did, that was a big thing. It wasn't like, of course, you should go to college. It's like, well, why? You gotta exactly. be practical. So that Absolutely. was a big decision, a big choice for you. Absolutely. And also at a time where I don't know if women weren't as encouraged as much to do that as as boys. No. So um, all sorts of. So again, that's you know I'm a reflective person, so I'm always curious about how you got to where you got to. So um, I know psychology is a big field, and you know much more about it than I do. But positive psychology, I've not really heard of that. I mean, is that a fairly new field? At least I don't. I mean, how long is psychology been around? At least as an intellectual discipline, would you say is it like?
2: Yes, around 1900, William okay. James, the founding father of uh, modern okay. day psychology, actually I visited Harvard not last year, the year before, so that was sort of where it was born, and went, I went the original building, wasn't there okay. any long, but it was such a, it was like a you know, wonderful to go and visit, and um, so William James, 1900, and uh, if you look back, actually any time I go and do some research on a different area of psychology that I haven't looked at for a while, I'll generally find it leads me back to William James so he was such a thought leader he had something to say on every topic that we're talking about now and then into um, jumping ahead a little bit into the 50s and 60s there was the movement uh, humanistic psychology was born and it was looking at I guess human potential And there were people like Abraham Maslow, who many of us Mm -hmm. now are familiar with the term Mm self-actualization, Carl Rogers, another incredible psychologist. Uh, And there were a group of these people, uh, mainly in the US, I would say. And uh, then what happened was cognitive psychology came in in, the 60s and 70s, people like Beck, Aaron Beck, and humanistic psychology was sort of forgotten about for a little while because there wasn't enough rigorous science to really understand Mm -hmm. what does it make for us to be fully functioning individuals. We couldn't really hmm. fully scientifically investigate that. And then what happened moving on from, I guess, the cognitive movement, cognitive behavioural movement, was Professor Martin Seligman, who was very well known in the US from University of Pennsylvania, doing wonderful work on pessimism. Uh, he wrote, published that wonderful book, Learned Optimism, which uh, many hmm. people will be familiar with. And he, I guess, I don't really know the full story, but um, there is some story that his daughter commented that he was always in a grumpy mood and he had a bit of an epiphany. And uh, he then founded this field of positive psychology, which the term itself had actually been coined by Abraham Maslow in the 50s. Mm. Um, But Marty Seligman brought it to life when he became the president of the American Psychological Association in 1998. I was doing my honors year in psychology at that time. And he, in his presidential speech said, the time has come for psychology to focus on what's right with people and what's right with the world rather than what's wrong with them. Because since the second world war in particular, there'd been a lot of investment, which was required for people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, depression from the second world war. And so Marty Seligman really flipped, started to flip psychology on its head again in his presidential year and founded this field, which is now 20 years old. But to be honest, it's still not mainstream. Um, I mean, clinical psychology, which is my background, still probably has the foothold in psychology, and it's needed when we look at the statistics of people suffering with mental illness. But um, positive psychology has brought a fresh air, <laughs> a breath of fresh air to psychology. <laughs> for people like me, that when I was doing my clinical training, I remember being, uh, you know, getting in trouble from my supervisor saying, "There's too much laughter coming from the clinical room, Susie." You know, and look. So I sort of I realised fairly quickly that you and I worked in a psychiatric clinic for a number of years it wasn't for me we do need people to do that sort of work but it's very hard work and again I think through a series of fortunate events I've been blessed to be able to do this I would describe it as much more proactive work so the space we work in is helping people proactively learn the skills of well-being resilience optimal human functioning so they can live their best lives.
1: And I almost think of just like traditional medicine. Is it valuable to know how to cure cancer and heart attacks? Yes. I mean, if you have cancer, heart Absolutely. attacks, you want that to be um, the best medicine, the best technology. But on the other hand, are there things that we can proactively do with diet, exercise, you know, mental, spiritual disciplines that are shown to have positive health benefits? Well, yes. So Absolutely. why wouldn't you want some prevention? Right. Because, you know, if you're fit and healthy, doesn't mean you won't get sick. But maybe, you know, if you eat the right diet, the chances of getting diabetes is not eliminated, but it's significantly lower. And exactly. so it's like, why wouldn't on a psychological basis, yes, it's important to understand depression and schizophrenia mm-hmm. and all sorts of mental disorders and mental challenges. But why wouldn't you want to understand what are the things that can help that keep us psychologically healthy and you know, uh, I wouldn't say prevention, but somewhat uh, ameliorating uh, factors. I mean, it seems logical. Like, in you wouldn't hear medical, you know, people in medicine saying, "Why are you talking about health and yeah,
2: exactly. helping
1: people be healthy and, and fitter and, and losing weight?" Well, that's stupid. We should just focus on cancer and heart attacks. You <laughs> wouldn't have that discussion, right? No. But so it seems not. like in the world of psychology, there's the, still a little bit of that discussion. Is that kind of what you find still?
2: Yeah, it's starting to it's starting to change, and I've been really fortunate to have been involved with the field of positive education, which actually emerged in Australia when uh, Geelong Grammar brought Marty Seligman's team mm-hmm. of academics from UPenn out and trained all of the staff you know, nine days of positive psychology. This was in two thousand and eight. I worked at the second school, which was Knox Grammar at the time. And now, I've, for the last 10 years, I've worked with numerous schools across Australia, and our approach is we work primarily with the teachers directly, and it, but it's about supporting the teachers to teach the children the skills of resilience and wellbeing as a preventative approach for mental illness, but also to improve wellbeing and improve their academic performance as well, because there's some great and growing research showing, which we all intuitively know, that when you're well, you do well. <laughs>
1: Well, right and, right. and when you're getting poor grades, there's usually some reason, whether it's a family or poor self-image. And um, yeah, it, exactly. So uh, one of the things that really intrigued me about this whole discussion of um, positive psychology is with crucible leadership, it, it's not grounded in science. It's really grounded in stories, mm-hmm. anecdotes, if you will, you know, in, in part my own story of Australian listeners will know, and past podcast listeners will know, of just growing up in a 150-year-old family media business, uh, which, amongst other things, had the Sydney Morning Herald and Sydney and radio, TV, a bunch of things, and it kind of uh, went uh, under on my watch, and so that was obviously a lot for me to grapple with and get over, and so obviously in my own life, you know, I have some thoughts about at least what worked for me, which mightn't work for everybody else, but certain things, and then um, just chatting to other folks who've been through all sorts of different crucibles. I'm always fascinated by people who've gone through a crucible experience, which to me is a transformational experience in which who you are afterward is totally different than, well, is significantly different than who you were before. And it's typically, it could be abuse, it could be losing a business, it could be getting fired, uh, death of a loved one, all sorts of things that we talk about crucible experiences. And I'm fascinated by the people that find a way to bounce back. Yes, there are always scars, but how do you bounce back? And there are phrases like pain for a purpose or all sorts of different ways that people have of coping with it. But I'm fascinated by, you're actually talking about a similar thing, but you're talking about it from a scientific basis. Yes. That's what's really exciting to me. So you've got a number of phrases you've mentioned, like post-traumatic growth, and which is a, a fascinating a uh, fascinating discussion. I think on your own website, Positivity Institute, it's, um, it's creating a flourishing world, something like that, which I love that phrase. I mean, wow. So talk about what are some of the elements that, irrespective of the crucible or the trauma, that lead some people to growth in a way that maybe you, wouldn't have been possible without it? What are some of those elements that you've discovered?
2: Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's really interesting, and I'm very thankful that I had the opportunity to work clinically in my early career, and particularly down in the area that I worked, which was in Wollongong, in uh, mm-hmm. south southern side of Sydney, because I know when I moved to Sydney and started working the CBD. I didn't see anywhere. I guess the range or the severity of, of psychiatric and psychological disorders. Uh, that that, that I was saw. Um,
1: that was Central Business District for. Uh,
2: yeah. Sorry, <laughs> for
0: <American> sorry. Yes, <laughs> for people like me. Uh, yeah, Thank you. Uh, uh,
1: basically, d- 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 downtown Sydney. Basically, <laughs> downtown Sydney. <laughs> yeah.
2: So I guess yeah, and I was really thrown in the deep end. I worked in a psychiatric clinic. I pretty much heard every horrendous, traumatic story that, you, that I've ever heard in my whole life. There's nothing I usually say now that I haven't really heard. Um, and I'm really thankful for that experience because, firstly, it made me realise what a blessed and privileged life I really did lead. I had two loving parents who pretty much have given me everything my whole life to enable me to do what I can. And they didn't have a lot, to be honest, but they gave me everything. So hearing those stories, you know, helping people make sense out of, Often, very senseless things, which I'm mm-hmm. sure you've heard, mm-hmm. things that you could never have imagined would happen in your life. And often, we talk about this when we're running uh, resilience type training, which I might add is very popular right now as well. <laughs> is that exactly? Is that um, sometimes you can see, you know, whether you call them the curveball mm. or the you mm. can see the adversity coming. So I have uh, two elderly parents, 93 at the moment, mm. and um, I'm really. You know, grateful for every moment that I have with them now. I know that we're talking about people living to 100, but I know that you know Mm -hmm. I've got limited time left with them. I can see that regardless of how skilled I am as a psychologist, that I'm going to be challenged by the loss of my Mm -hmm. parents, who I've had a very close relationship with. I am already psychologically preparing myself for that. But there are situations that come out of left field, Mm -hmm. which again, I have only had some minor ones compared to Mm -hmm. some of the ones that I'm sure your guests have had Mm -hmm. that absolutely shock you to the, you know, break you Mm -hmm. to the core in a sense. And um, so I've had the privilege of working with people like that. Um, And I guess it, for me, it firmed up two things. One is that you can recover and you can bounce back. And in fact, when it comes to this Growing area of post-traumatic growth, they talk more about bouncing forward. So you're not just Mm. getting back to where you were, you're actually stronger, faster, you know, than you were before. And I, I guess also the other thing that occurred for me at the time was my children were in primary school at the time. And I thought, what? why aren't my children learning these skills at school? Like these are life skills. They're they're skills I'm learning as as I'm training to be a psychologist. They're skills I'm teaching people after the curveballs hit them. But why on earth aren't we teaching these skills at school? And that's what's starting to happen now. Not in all schools, I might add, but it is starting to happen because I believe that we can and we should be teaching these skills proactively. They may not prevent every episode of mental illness, but they certainly might equip us to perhaps even proactively take on challenges rather than waiting for the crucible experiences Mm -hmm. to occur. occur. And now I believe that I think part of personal growth and, you know, self-actualization, there's a good chance it does require those crucible experiences, but I think we could possibly complement that with proactively seeking out growth opportunities for ourselves, which most people like to stay in their comfort zones. They don't tend to like to sit with a discomfort that accompanies moving out of our growth, you know, moving out of our comfort zones. So I think for me, I've been really interested in this and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. With, um, you know, sitting, having the need for these crucible character building experiences versus how do we also proactively teach our children to stretch themselves and put themselves in perhaps not dramatic experiences, but growth experiences.
1: Right. I mean, where there's some risk, you know, you yes. enter into a school prize or you go for an athletic event or there's yes. a ballet recital or, you know, so. uh, you want to be in a play, whatever it is, <clears throat> there's the risk of rejection. There's a risk yeah. of somebody saying, you know, you're really actually pretty awful, and I can't believe you actually tried out <laughs> for this part. I mean, really. it right. <laughs> doesn't hopeless. tend to
2: happen these days very often <laughs> at school, unfortunately. No.
1: <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm somebody that loves history, and it, you'd be hard-pressed to think of a great leader that didn't become who they were because of uh, trauma. I mean, I think of one example in America, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, You know, he was this happy-go-lucky rich kid, basically, which I wasn't happy-go-lucky, but I could identify with the rich kid. (laughs) You know, when he was growing up, man about town, you know, good-looking guy, uh, you know, candidate for vice president in like the 1922 election. And then kind of lo and behold, uh, in the 20s, he suffered polio, which as an adult Mm. was, um, uh, was very rare. But it really, uh, at the time, was a, um, was a death sentence, uh, yes. at least politically. It was, it was considered, his mom said, like, you should just stay home. Because it's, it was almost like somehow you were blamed for it. But right. somehow between his wife and one of his um, close advisors, they got him back on his feet. So the person he became as president during the midst of the Depression and encouraging people all you need, you know, the only thing to fear is fear itself. Yes. When, you know, if if somebody, was some like rich kid, you know, in the middle of the depression, who could relate to that? But somebody, even though he didn't talk about it, you could see him, you know, trying to get up to the podium to speak with his boys, helping him. And he's, you know, in great Mm -hmm. pain as he's actually trying to shuffle along in these hideous uh, metal um, braces on his legs. The person he became would not have been possible without that, that crucible experience. Exactly. So, I mean, nobody would wish to have, have polio, No, no. You know? but he became the person, he was, I think, one other story that I personally can't understand from a psychological perspective mm-hmm. because it makes no sense. There's a woman by the name of uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, who's uh, somebody in the faith realm. She has a, had a radio show that's listened to by, I don't know, maybe millions. I mean, it's it's very big. And she suffered a uh, accident while diving when she was a teenager. She's athletic, very good on horses, and she became a quadriplegic, mm-hmm. you know so and that was probably maybe 40, 50 years ago, a very long time ago, and she's had a huge impact on people with disabilities in wheelchairs, and she says this Amazing. thing that I think is it's almost hideous, but she calls her her wheelchair a passport to joy. Wow. Now, I don't know what okay. that means. I'm not saying I agree with that in any way, shape, or form. Yep. To me, that's yep. like wrong. But somehow yep. she says you'd have to understand the full context of that because it sounds like repugnant. Yes. But I think what she's getting at is the person she became through that horrendous life-altering accident right. was different than who she was before. That's right. I think that's what, in a maybe artful way or a way that's at least grating,
2: Exactly. But you, it's is, a major, is that what
1: you've seen? Like, I know these are...
2: Absolutely. These- I mean, for some people, it might initially be a coping mechanism to reframe. And in fact, part of the psychological treatment is in part a, a reframe. We call it cognitive reframing, cognitive restructuring. So looking at a situation differently. Uh, and for, I mean, that's an amazing, amazing reframe to, uh, to view, it that, view it that way. And in fact, that's what Seligman's work around uh, learned optimism draws on heavily. He has a very simple tool, actually, that people might be interested in called the ABCDE technique. So A is the adversity. So what is it that's happened to you? B is the belief. So that's the belief that you hold your perspective on that situation, which then leads to C, which is the consequence. So due to your beliefs on the situation, you can lead to a variety of emotional and behavioral consequences. And worry. In 2008, I was working in Sydney through the GFC, 2008, 2009, and I had a clinical practice and I had a coaching, executive coaching practice. I was just transitioning at Mm -hmm. the time. And so I I saw this in real life. I had people that were coming to me for exactly the same adversity, loss of job out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And these were people I had one man say to me, if you told me I'd be sitting in this chair a year ago, I would have laughed at you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, very high performer in his role, Mm -hmm. loss of job. And so some people came for clinical treatment because they had beliefs of this is it, I'll never get another job, I can't put my kids through school, a whole range of these types of beliefs, which then led to you know, depressed mood, you know, behavioral consequences in terms of not looking for another job even. They don't employ old people. I heard that said so many times. Versus people that came to the exec coaching, which had the same situation but had a belief okay, you know, I didn't really expect this, but it might be just the opportunity to explore other areas of interest that I have, other career, it might be an opportunity to change careers. So I could see it in real time, same situation, different perspective, um, and which they had, in in a sense, had done by themselves before they'd even come (laughs) to see me. But, yeah, that reframe, um, the way that you look at a situation has been found to have a significant impact on how you do, how you feel and how you do.
1: And, and this know.
0: brings up a, an interesting point in an article that you sent us, Susie, from the Journal of Loss and Trauma. And we talked at the outset about the scientific underpinnings of what Susie does as compared to the experiential things that Warwick does through crucible leadership. And I, the summary of this study on post-traumatic growth, really gets to the point that you're talking about, about Mm -hmm. reframing what happened and seeing it as an opportunity to move ahead. I'm just going to read a couple lines from it. It would behoove humanitarian interventions to abandon erroneous assumptions and consider the other side of the coin in order to guard against undue bias toward making drama out of the trauma, however, quote-unquote, justified it might be. It is the duty of applied anthropologists, psychologists, and others to venture beyond the fence of their own disciplines and acquire new skills to enable them to engage in interdisciplinary inquiry into the human spirit, which often rises above the trauma of war and other uh, disasters. Understanding resilience, recovery, and post-traumatic growth and transformation will help illuminate rather than eclipse paths leading to light at the end of the tunnel for disaster-stricken individuals and their communities. That right there is science unpacking what Warwick has talked about since founding Crucible Leadership and what you just talked about a few minutes ago.
2: Exactly. And look, it is an emerging field and we do need more research on it. But all of us know people that have suffered adversity. and, And in fact, the early studies on resilience looked at, you know, children that were in adverse situations that maybe twin studies where one actually did develop a psychiatric disorder and and the other ones flourished and trying to understand what it, what is it about those children or those qualities that, that allow them to do that so um but yeah the area is very very interesting and, and it also talks about a shattering of our fundamental beliefs or schemas and and that's often it's like a what we call it in Australia a what the a what the moment like what what, <laughs> what 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 just happened and then it does and look in many cases particularly with trauma as you would know it does require professional assistance to work with a professional to work through that process and part of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is because the brain is like a filing system. It likes to be able to neatly file things. When when life happens, it like that fits here and that fits here. And when something that comes out of left field that doesn't fit anywhere, the brain keeps bringing it up. It keeps reemerging, which is why you have nightmares and you know dreams about it because the brain's trying to file it. And so part of the healing process is often with uh, whether it's a psychiatrist or a psychologist trying to create a narrative around what happened, and some meaning making through it. And then I guess a, a creation of a new transformed self and what you're going to do with that experience going forward.
1: I mean, that's, I think that's so important. I think it's changing a bit. But there used to be a case where, you know, unless you were going to be locked up somewhere, you should never see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, yeah. there was a stigma about it. But it's like with anything else, you know, if you had some health issue, uh, cancer of some description, you go to a doctor to seek help. Well, yeah. same with psychologists or psychiatrists. I think it's, you know, very important because for me, at least, understanding kind of what I went through and why I was feeling what I was feeling was very helpful, you know, yes. and maybe some of the things I was exposed to growing up, some of which were positive and some of which like all of us weren't such positive influences, you know, and that's we right. all have our scars. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to understand how some people bounce back and others don't. I mean, obviously that's what you study. I mean, yes. it's that whole with thing with kids, nature or nurture, anybody that's had kids, know they come out of the box a certain way they're influenced by us and by life and community. But, some come out of the box, they're athletes or they're scientists or they're artists. And, yep. and I have no idea whether that's true psychologically in terms of a tendency towards optimism, whether that's yes. learnt, choice, you know, nature or all of the above. That's yep. probably a comp- Do you have any feeling on yeah. that? What mix Look, is there, it? Is it a mix? The
2: area, yeah, it, it is definitely. And the area that I've been looking at, I guess, more intensely over the last uh, probably eight years is called mental toughness and it's a sci- it is actually a scientific construct so it's a, sta- a construct a, a topic that's been studied rigorously in in science primarily in in the UK and it's been used looked at in education as well it comes off the back of some earlier research on cognitive hardiness and there was some great research mm-hmm. done by Kabasa and Maddie and I- think, looking in the military as well. And so they have found that there is a genetic component and that some people are just born a bit tougher, if you like, than others. And, you know, some of the great insights that we have when we're running this program in leadership programs is that for those that's scoring higher, and you can actually take an assessment as well, for those that are scoring higher on the mental toughness assessment, they often don't have um, patience or tolerance for others that aren't like them. Interesting. Um, (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, I have a partner who's ex, ex-military ex and I know in the early stages, it you know, we spoke a lot about that not everybody's like that. You know, in fact, you're, you're possibly an outlier when it comes to this, when it comes to this. And so it, it often does bring great insight to people when they realise that, no, not everyone is like that. Not everyone can just move on and build a bridge and get over things. In fact, the research says the majority of people aren't like that. But the good news is that, that we can learn some skills to cope a lot better with uh, the dramas and the traumas that come along.
1: That is the wonderful, maybe gift of so crucible experience. It does teach you a bit of humility. I mean, certainly for me, humility has always been one of my highest badges, even before the whole takeover thing. But yeah, I mean, when you lose a 2 billion plus business and, you know, if you Google me, you know, the Wikipedia entry is still not favorable and probably never will. (laughs) I often say you don't want your self-worth defined by Google or Wikipedia. Not no like way. But, um, no one way. of the things I'd be curious is, I mean, one of the things I've viewed from my world of crucible leadership is to a certain degree, you go through trauma. You, you can't always control what happened. And yes, it could take years to get over and there's counseling. And sometimes you could say, I'm going to get over it tomorrow when it could take 10, 20, it took me a decade or more to really, you know, begin to get beyond it. But the, the word that comes to mind is sort of choice Am I going to yeah. try and deal with it and move forward? And that could be seeking counseling. That could be saying, okay, what What are the positive things I can learn from? it?" Like in my case, not all of it was my fault. A lot of it was my fault. Okay, yeah. how do I accept ownership of that and blame, if you will, and then move on and forgive myself? Yeah. I mean, a lot of thoughts going through my head. One is choice. The other word is is forgiveness, forgiving yourself, forgiving others.
2: Absolutely. You know, like
1: you think of abuse victims as the classic case of how can you forgive the unforgivable? And from my perspective, not having gone through that is like, well, if you don't, it holds you back. Again, I'm not a psychologist, but it's like, it's, you know, you're worth forgiving even if they're not. Kind of, anyway, it's I guess I asked about three different questions in one. <laughs> right. me, but, but basically, really the core one is, is choice. And
2: yeah.
1: do you feel like there's some degree of choice about how you deal with it? And one well, leads I to think, a positive path I mean, and one leads to a not-so-positive path.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the major components of developing mental toughness or resilience is around our mindset. Um, but the thing is, where well, it sounds really simple, like, you know, I mm-hmm. oh, will just think differently, just change right. your thinking, but it's actually really difficult to do and nobody has got the silver bullet around how to t- to change those neural pathways a lot quicker than you know because they're well-worn pathways which have often been there from our you know early um, childhood adolescence and the longer they go on the stronger they are and so it I means sometimes it is through these crucible experiences that there is has to be a rewiring and we have to start or we start seeing ourselves and situations differently but yes yeah, so a large part of it is through our mindset now for some people that's relatively easy to do and in fact a lot of the work we do in the corporate sector we find um, some people do it and they don't even realize that it's a skill and then you have other people in the same team where it's like an aha moment that they realize that they don't have to be a victim to their thinking you know that thinking thoughts are not necessarily facts and that you can learn to be an observer and you can choose to think differently again I think you know it depends on your environment there's a lot you know, around who who's in your family, the messages you've been given as well. And so some people, a lot of people still, I guess, would think that they can't change their, their thinking, which is why I'm going to use this opportunity to encourage people to, why we need to learn it at school, you know, because we may not be learning it at home as well. So I think, yes, absolutely choice. But sometimes I think sometimes we can judge people so harshly that they haven't, you know, chosen to think differently or chosen to move on as well. Yeah, that's
1: so true. I mean, you can never judge somebody especially if those are shoes you've never walked in circumstances you've never been through but yeah, yeah I mean I think you mentioned a number of things there and in your writings about um, community mentorship I know and in, in my case I'm you know blessed to have a you know amazing uh, wife I have three kids in their 20s and um you know yeah I had some mixed messages uh growing up about, uh, you know, my value or not value, but certainly for my own family, there's always been one message. It's unconditional love, which again, I'm not a psychologist, but nice. you give somebody unconditional love, Absolutely. just like a flower, they will grow and thrive. Ab- you know?
2: Absolutely. And there's, yeah, I mean, so much research on that. Absolutely. And, and again, not everyone has that experience. And if you don't have
1: it, if you have like, yeah. you know, continual and perpetual abuse, Psychologically and physically, your whole life from everybody you know, then, how yeah, you know, recovering from that would seem to be difficult, if not close that's, to impossible. I mean, if you did that, that'd be a miracle. If you, you
2: yeah, know, and I guess that that's positivity. where like, yeah, where you said it might be a mentor comes mm-hmm. along, or you know, it might be a school teacher that right. um plays that role. So those roles are really important in our community.
1: Right, because you don't always have it from your family because you can't choose no. where you're born into. You can choose your friends and that kind of thing. So Uh, please go ahead.
2: I was just going to say, because you mentioned forgiveness and and I think that's a really important topic. The character strengths uh, assessment that I mentioned before, forgiveness is one of the character strengths and having used it, it launched in 2004 and I've used it extensively over the years and I haven't actually seen any studies on it, but my experience has been it's quite rare that it occurs in someone's top five Mm -hmm. character strengths. You often see it more so in their bottom five. And uh, I usually say, suggest to people, you know, take this as an opportunity to reflect because there's actually been probably over 30 forgiveness interventions that have been conducted now to show that letting go of Those strong negative emotions that we hold, that stony unforgiveness is really bad for both your psychological and your physical well-being. Now, having worked clinically again, forgiveness, I know, particularly if there's been horrendous Uh, Transgressions made, Mm -hmm. it is quite a process to go through. But there's also some great research around just letting go of grudges that people hold on to. So, firstly, you know, if you do the assessment, have a look at where it sits. If if you do have some insights that you're not a very forgiving person, I would absolutely encourage you to work on that. But what I have found is for people where it's in your top five, and it may very well be in your top five work too, is that when I've inquired about why do you think that is, I've had a a few, a couple of different responses. The first is that I grew up in a family where it was a topic. Um, Maybe something had happened to the family and it had been a family Hmm. discussion or it had been a value, a value that the family um, Hmm. had placed value on, or they had been through an experience where they'd had to actively work on forgiving someone else or forgiving themselves. And that's why it turns up in the top five.
1: Yeah, I know. For me, it was like both. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. I had to forgive myself. Yes. Uh, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have been very functional. But again, you know, maybe give, forgive some other people among my own family for, you know, sort of certain negative uh, role models or impact on my life. But for me, you know, growing up in a powerful family media business, I used to joke, you know, some kids in, uh, I don't know, middle school, primary school, they, they have like somebody sticks a, um, a note on their back that says, kick me. Yeah. You know, it's fun. Yeah. I always felt like one that says betray me. I mean, it's like I had right. a lot of experience in different betray financial me. things and what have you. And so to me, it was like a survival. It's like, okay, in an ideal world, when somebody wrongs you, they apologize and say, I'm so sorry, please yeah. forgive me. In the real world, that rarely happens, happen. unfortunately. That's right. Even That's when right. you try and have that conversation, it's like, oh, not my problem, or That's there's the dreaded the sorry if. I'm sorry if that hurt you, which means That's nothing. It. You know? it. exactly. It's almost meaning I find, when people say that. But for me, uh, from my paradigm is, I come from a faith-based paradigm, so that helps to a degree in that, you know, from a Christian perspective, you know, you... Forgive because we're forgiven, which obviously is not going to help everybody, but it does to a degree in the faith community. But it's almost more practically. I feel like forgiveness is important because we're worth it. You yeah, know, it's a, gif- it's a it,
2: gift to yourself. Actually, <laughs> even if what
1: they did to you was horrendous and wrong and "quote unquote" unforgivable, by holding that grudge, it holds you back. Absolutely. So it's not so much they're worth forgiving because objectively they might not be, but you are. By by letting go, it helps you move on. And by not forgiving, you're in a cage. And why let them win? You know, you win by letting go. That's You know, I think of, um, again, I think of so many great leaders. They don't hold grudges. I think of Winston Churchill was a great role model for that. Time and time again, he made a lot of his own mistakes, but he never held grudges. And Wrong. there was the classic 1945 election where Clement Attlee, the labor politician, won. Here's Churchill thinking, look, I just saved Britain, maybe the world yeah. from Hitler and Nazism. And this is the thanks I get for that. Yeah. <laughs> they want you know, national health care and other things. I get that. But really? So somebody made fun of Clement Attlee, then the labor prime minister. And he said, don't you dare do that. He's our prime minister. We should, wow. I may disagree with his politics but you don't make fun of him. He's our prime minister. We don't go there. Yes. So he was somebody that really, he made a lot of Getting mistakes, organized. but he had a tremendous capacity, maybe forgive isn't the right word in this case, but not hold grudges.
2: Yes, and absolutely. So that provided
1: a huge resilience in his I think
2: that a, a, would be a huge part of this, and uh, depending on what happened to you, whether it was someone or something that happened, that mm-hmm. that process of, I mean the acceptance is the other the word I guess that comes to mind, and often you 'll get people pushing back on that. Why should I have to accept that and again, it is a quite a process of um, accepting what is and what you can 't change, but what can you change or what can you influence going forward as well
1: the, the other fact i 'd be curious to get your thoughts on is we talk about it a bit you know pain for a purpose and um, you know, it's obviously impossible to know fully in terms of some higher power and why things happen or why things are allowed to happen. That's a whole vigorous debate in uh, theological or spiritual circles, which would be a whole nother discussion. But I often find in the people that bounce back, they're able to find some meaning. They're able to, you know, whether it's a breast cancer survivor, just um, helping other people with, who've gone through that. They're using their pain to help others. It doesn't mean it's right or fair, but somehow by finding some purpose in what you're going through to help others, that anecdotally seems to be very, there's a healing balm, there's a healing component when you're focused on using your pain to help others. I mean, even if your value system doesn't say you should do that, from a psychological health thing,
2: yeah, if helping
1: other people is gonna help you, why not be self-centered and help other people at the risk of being facetious? But have you found out in your research that helping others can be healing to a degree?
2: Yeah, there's a huge amount of research that even sits separately around altruism, you know, and and the benefits, uh, the psychological benefits. Um, I mean, obviously, the people are benefiting that are receiving on the receiving end, but we get a boost to our own psychological well-being through the giving and the the altruism. But I think, as I said before, I mean, part of, I guess, the recovery or the the treatment um, for trauma is is often that that sort of meaning-making process, which can be difficult to do and, and can take quite a bit of time as you said but um but I mean I'm really interested in that sort of intersection with uh you know the, the spiritual aspect of it as well and in fact that is an area that hasn't received a lot of attention in the field of positive psychology up until recently and there's a recent group that's just formed with the international post psych association and I've been asked to be part of that group to have some discussions around uh, spirituality and and religion and the role that they play in our well-being
1: it is an interesting discussion because even if mm-hmm. you look at it from more of a humanistic perspective, I think the whole spiritual thing, irrespective of religion, that it's all yes. bunk. I remember what Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses, and you yeah. Know, yeah. obviously that was his perspective.
2: Yes. But
1: even if it's not real, if it works and it helps, yes, then maybe there's some delusions. And obviously, I don't think if it is a delusion, but even if it is, if it's helpful. It's yes, the sense the of benefit. There's a purpose, there's a better place that you're going to, God loves you no matter what. Just like even if you don't have unconditional love from any human, the yes. fact that there's a spiritual entity that loves you unconditionally, That's even right. if it doesn't exist, that, that sheer notion is helpful, the fact that there's meaning and, yeah, there's yes. certainly components of that that can help. But to me, sort of the message, what I'm hearing you say, Susie, is that you know, I love your caution in the sense that it's not a choice where, okay, today I'm a broken person. Tomorrow I'll be fully functional and healed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It takes, I mean, I didn't go through massive abuse or that kind of thing, but even in my world of the family business thing, it took a decade or more to begin to claw my way back in terms of positive self-esteem. And it was baby step by baby step. That was, to me, if there's one word for, from the uneducated, Person in this field, it would be baby steps. You know, what's a yep. little baby step I can take? Yeah, take a job, and it was a low-paid um, thing in the financial services. But okay, I can do something well without screwing up. Okay, right. That's, That's a ba- and then little by little, and you get approval yep. from what you're doing, and self-esteem comes back. But it's it's not overnight. But it is a journey. It is sort of mission possible, if yes. you will, to recover from. You know, what does a cover mean? I don't know exactly, but to at least be in a better place than you were.
2: <laughs> yes. I had a wonderful mentor when I first started off as a psychologist. She was a psychologist and, uh, she'd heard I was working in a psychiatric clinic and actually rang me. She didn't know who I was and said, will you come and work for me? She said, you can sit in with me for two weeks and watch what I do. And, um, she only passed away last year. Um, she was 93 as well. And, uh, Oh, what an incredible experience that was. She, again, it was down in the Illawarra, so we had really diverse clients coming in, people that had lost children, um, people with cancer, like just everything that you could imagine. And I always recall I've actually kept her some notes from those sessions. I call them Patsy's Pearls um, because she had some, I learned some amazing pearls from the stories and the way that she worked with people. But I, I remember how she said to many people, right now this is, This is awful. This is painful. But in in time to come, and she said, and that time will come, you'll be able to look back at that situation and you'll be able to understand perhaps why or you'll come to terms with it a lot better than you are now. But she said, you'll also find, she said, there's no science to this, but you'll find that you come across somebody or people that are going through a similar experience and you're going to be able to help them. And I always thought that's, and and now in my life, that has absolutely been (laughs) the experience.
1: And that is very comforting to think that maybe some, that I can help other people. So that's why I find this whole post-traumatic growth. It's so encouraging. I love the fact that you're thinking of, and are trying to help kids because giving them, you know, as kids, they can go through horrific experiences very mm -hmm. sadly, but oftentimes, you know, there's more to come. You know, and so giving him some uh, tools to be proactive, you know, I mean that does help. I think that's really well, uh, well worth it. So I love this whole concept of post-traumatic uh, growth. So uh, hopefully, um, it's gaining traction. People we'll gain more traction. People will realize this is worthy of studying. If it's going to help people, why shouldn't psychologists study it?
2: Absolutely. And there's also another emerging field called post-ecstatic growth, Warwick, which wow. is looking at, <laughs> looking at people that have, um, I guess, really uplifting moments of awe or elevation in their lives. Yeah. And they seem to have similar outcomes in terms of a recognition of a, a spiritual life, for example, or in, an increased focus on really working out what is a meaningful relationship, um, and changing their priorities in their life. So that's, again, fairly new out of the University of Pennsylvania again. But, yes, some wonderful areas of research that that do fall under this umbrella term of positive psychology.
0: That is an excellent point for us to begin the process I like to call landing the plane. So we're not quite (laughs) on the ground yet, but I can hear the gear going down and the guys with the little um, flashlights on the runway. One of the things I want to stress for the listener as you've listened into this conversation between uh, Warwick and Susie is that you've heard some of the same language used from Warwick, who built Crucible Leadership as a brand rooted in story, rooted in anecdote, and from Susie, who is talking about things from a scientific, psychological perspective. And one of the things, Susie, frankly, that led us to reach out to you to be a guest is the acronym for the Positivity Institute that you've created. Actually, it's I'm looking at uh, an acronym for CIVIL. And one of the things that shows up as I'm looking at it, I could be reading the Crucible Leadership website because I see right. words like character. I see words like integrity. I see words like authenticity. I see legacy. I see this... Commitment to making a difference in the world, mentoring and developing young people, doing meaningful work for causes that matter. That could be right off of the Crucible Leadership website that Warwick has created. So in our last couple of minutes here, for listeners who've heard this and are intrigued, want to know more, how can they find out more about the Positivity Institute and about you?
2: Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, we'll go to the website, thepositivityinstitute.com.au. We've got a number of resources in there. We do offer services for individuals. Uh, we do virtual coaching. We do, as I mentioned, some wonderful work in schools. And But uh, most of our work is actually in the corporate sector, in the workplace as well. So, yeah, absolutely. First stop there, you can contact us. If you've heard anything on here today that you want to learn more about, The email address is on the website, but it's just info at the positivityinstitute.com.au. Happy to share for those that really want the academic rigorous papers, happy to send those through um, or also, you know, point you in the right direction. We also have, I've put together a, a document uh, for further recommended courses in both positive psychology and coaching psychology, which range from certificates right through to PhDs. And I'll also give a plug, there are a couple, possibly even three now, MOOCs. So a MOOC is a massive open online course that you can do for free through the University of Pennsylvania. They have one on positive psychology. Yale has apparently the most popular course at Yale on positive psychology. And you can do these courses for free if you don't want certification. So if you want to learn more, that would be also a great place to go to.
0: Fabulous. I'm going to wrap up here in just a second, Warwick, with some key takeaways from this discussion. But I want to give you one last chance to ask Susie any question I know you well enough to know that there's one in there somewhere.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't maybe just an observation. It's just, I think it's so encouraging, Susie, what you're doing with positive psychology and, you know, helping people find meaning uh, in what happened and acceptance and mentors, relationships. It's not easy, but even if you haven't been born with certain characteristics or skills you can learn, you know, and psychology should indeed focus on, you know, some of the, um, clinical traumas, but it should also focus on the positive side, how, you know, to come back from a crucible experience. So yeah, as Gary said, you know just the whole civil acronym connectivity, ingenuity, vitality, integrity, legacy. I mean, wow. It's just like, I agree. I mean, I agree with everything that's there. It's so positive. So, uh, yeah, I think it's encouraging more people need to hear about what you're doing that, um, it is possible to bounce back from crucible experiences, from from trauma. And it is possible to have a positive attitude to life. And it's not easy. It's not going to happen overnight. But even if people knew, okay, it won't happen overnight. Maybe it'll take 10, 20, 30 years, maybe a lifetime. But there are baby steps of growth each day. That gives you a reason to get up in the morning, even if it's going to be a long journey, right? If it's like, okay, I made a positive step today. Hooray. Right? Yep. It may not seem big to others. To me, it seemed like leaping a chasm. That's exactly. What it takes.
2: Yeah. And it builds a sense of confidence. Those baby steps, you stop and think, right, I can do it. I can do it. And then you're building those positive, hopeful, Uh, Again, lots of research around hope theory and in positive psychology as well. So we're building hopeful narratives for the future. But we do need more people um, talking about this. So thank you also for the work that you do because I can assure you it's underpinned by science uh, based on what you've been Mm. referring to today as well. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity for speaking with you today.
0: This is when I know that we've had a great show is that I always at the end do – Here's three key takeaways, and Warwick just stole every one of them in what he just said. His observation – no, it's beautiful. His observation of his conversation with you, Susie, and listener, um, uh, just summarized everything I was going to say. So I don't need to say what I was going to say for those key takeaways because Warwick summed them up beautifully. And what I want to leave you with, listener, is a couple of things. One, hear the similarities in what Warwick has talked about experientially in his own story and the stories of other guests that we've had on this show. And what Susie's talked about scientifically, she said it right at the end, just a few minutes, like two minutes ago, that what Warwick speaks about, what crucible leadership leads you to is underpinned by the science. That is, if you take nothing else away, know that that is both experientially true and scientifically true. And that's a powerful recipe for moving beyond your crucible. From our perspective at Crucible Leadership, to learn more about what Warwick does, you can visit our website at crucibleleadership.com. You also can subscribe to the podcast. If you're just listening to it because a friend passed it along, find the subscribe button on the app that you're listening to and subscribe to it. Because if you do that, you will not miss any episodes. You'll get every new episode when it comes out. And we have a new one almost every week, three times to four times a month. You'll get a new episode every time and it will help us if you subscribe to reach more people. So share it with your friends. If this conversation enlightened you, if this conversation encouraged you, share that with your friends so that that enlightenment and encouragement can get passed along. So until the next time that we're together, Thank you for spending time with us at Beyond the Crucible. And remember this clarion truth, as we've discussed here, both experientially from Warwick and scientifically from Susie, that crucible experiences are difficult. They're painful, things that can knock the wind out of your sails and knock you off the course that your boat was going. But they're not the end of your story. In fact, if you learn the lessons of those crucible experiences if you manifest resilience you can write a new story and the chapter of that story the first chapter of that story will lead you down a path toward the ultimate goal a life of significance